Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Helix Center's final um, event for the spring of 2022. And again, uh, we're sorry to report that we've continued to have to be a Zoom-only presentation, but this is also available on YouTube in perpetuity. Um, today I have the, uh, well, I'm Gerald Hurwitz. I'm the Associate Director of Helix Center. And I'm here with this illustrious panel of discussants who are going to discuss the rather uh, large topic of metaphysics. Uh, let me take a moment to introduce our panelists and then we'll get our conversation underway. Of course, future um, Helix programs will be announced in due time, which will start again, start up again in the fall of 2022. And we're hoping that those will include live uh, roundtables. So first, I'll introduce Harold Atmansbacher, who is a senior scientist and staff member at the Collegium Helveticum, University of Zurich and ETH Zurich since 2007. After his PhD in physics at Munich University, he worked as a research scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics at Garshing until 1998. Then he served as head of the theory group at the Institute for frontiers area, Frontier Areas of Psychology at Freiburg until 2013. His fields of research are the theory of complex systems, conceptual and theoretical aspects of algebraic quantum theory and mind-matter relations from interdisciplinary perspectives. He is the president of the Society for the Mind-Matter Research, for Mind-Matter Research and editor-in-chief of the interdisciplinary international journal, Mind and Matter. Moving on, Elizabeth Barnes is professor of philosophy at the University of Virginia. Her research interests are divided between metaphysics, social philosophy, feminist philosophy, and ethics. She's particularly interested in the places where these topics overlap. She's written a book on disability called The Minority Body and is currently writing a book about the nature of health. Lately, she's also been thinking a lot about the metaphysics of social structures. Hans Halverson is the Stewart Professor of Philosophy at Princeton University. He has written extensively on the foundations of quantum physics, philosophy of science, and the relationship between science and theology, with articles appearing in the Journal of Mathematical Physics, Physical Review, and the British Journal of for Philosophy of Science, among others. Halverson has received a Mellon Foundation New Directions Fellowship, a Cushing Memorial Prize in the History and Philosophy of Physics, Best Article of the Year by a Research PhD, and 10 Best Philosophy Articles of the Year, um, both in 2001 and 2002. Greg Yeager is a professor of natural science and mathematics at Boston University. After postdoctoral work in the history of science and experimental quantum optics physics, uh, I'm sorry, quantum optical physics, he assumed his current interdisciplinary professorship in 2006. He was awarded a Cavill, a Kavli Fellowship in 2008 for his work on quantum computing, holding two fundamental patents, and co-edited Philosophy of Quantum Information and Entanglement on Cambridge University Press. He is the author of the monographs Quantum Information, Entanglement Information, and the Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics and Quantum Objects. Most recently, he co-authored Quantum Metrology, Imaging, and Communication, and co-edited Quantum Arrangements, 
His current work focuses on the ontological status of elementary particles in quantum field theory. And finally, Arkady Plotnitsky is a distinguished professor of literature, theory and cultural studies program and philosophy and literature program at Purdue University. He has published nine books, several edited or co-edited collections and about 200 articles on continental philosophy, romantic and modernist literature, the philosophy of mathematics and physics and the relationship among literature, philosophy and science. His most re recent book is Reality Without Realism, Matter, Thought and Technology in Quantum Physics. His next, his next book, Logos and Allegon, The Thinkable and the Unthinkable in Mathematics from the Pythagoreans to the Moderns is forthcoming from Springer Nature next year. So with that, I'd like to get things rolling. I thought we might start by having each of our discussants make a brief comment about, let's say what they think metaphysics is and what it's for. And I think it would be nice if it would be brief and then we can get the conversation rolling. So whoever wants to volunteer to go first, please go for it. Do I have to pick someone? <laughs> Hans, you want to take a shot? You look like you're making a move. Okay. Well, I'll uh, I'll start. I'll say I'll say a couple words about uh, my my own professional background because I've uh, had had the good fortune that although I um my primary field of study was philosophy as a, as an undergraduate student, and then I became uh, interested in uh, I mean it became very clear to me that that philosophical research, I think, uh, benefits a lot from looking at what's going on in science, uh, hopefully to learn for itself, but also actually I hope the contribution can go the other way. Um, the, one of the main reasons for me uh, that was important is, is I was educated in the United States my entire life. I got in, in many ways what I thought was a, a good scientific education, but I thought it was a scientific education that said, stop at a certain point asking certain questions, right? Because we need to, we need to focus our time on calculations and new technologies. And we don't wanna get hung up on any these big questions about like, why do we exist? <laughs> why is there a universe? Things like this. So that's what naturally led me into philosophy. Um, but then I was fortunate enough that I was around philosophers that said, hey, these, these are really the same conversation. So although I, I would not actually consider myself a, a metaphysician because within philosophy, there, there are some who have you know, very special professional competence in metaphysics, but I actually think that anyone who's, um, who's reflecting on the nature of reality is to some extent uh, doing metaphysics. And I think even, even scientists um, who may feel like it's important for them professionally to say, what I'm doing is physics, it's not metaphysics. I think that's actually, unfortunately, not really true. Um, I mean, I think they are doing metaphysics, even if they're not being being completely honest about that. So I'm, I'm glad that we're able to talk about this openly here um, and that we have people with uh, sort of both, you know, angles on this, both coming from the sciences and from uh, philosophy. Great. If I could follow up on what Hans says, because um, uh, I have a somewhat different background. I'm not as uh, nearly as uh, steeped in the sciences, but I, I agree with a lot of what he said in terms of uh, what metaphysics is. I mean, if I... Uh, I think it's kind of a foolhardy project to try to give definitions of any um, aspect of philosophy because it's uh, so slippery. But um, I guess in a nutshell, I would think of metaphysics as something like questions about the nature of reality um, that aren't 
better or at least completely addressed by empirical means. Um, and of course, it's a somewhat often fraught and tendentious question exactly uh, what those questions might be or um, the extent of what empirical inquiry, inquiry can show us or what linguistic inquiry can show us or um, that kind of thing. But in, in terms of what metaphysics is for, um, my own background is that I, I came to metaphysics from a place of skepticism. I didn't like it and I didn't want to do it. And I wanted to do ethics and uh, sort of the more humanistic end of philosophical inquiry without doing metaphysics. And I found that I, I couldn't avoid it. Um, I mean, my philosophical trajectory has kind of been like me yelling at metaphysics. I wish I knew how to quit you. Um, and, and I haven't been able to, it seemed to me that, um, one of the key aspects of metaphysics as a part of philosophical inquiry is just that these questions always come up. It always comes up. Um, you know, what is the difference between uh, correlation and causation? If we have these observed regularities, what do they explain? What do they say? What are these things, you know, what parts of um, this thing that we're saying is just an aspect of theory and to what extent does it represent reality? And like all of these things inevitably involve metaphysical questions. Um, and so I would say like, I mean, for me personally, the primary role of metaphysics is most of this, these ineliminable questions that are not primarily empirical questions, but they are questions about what the world is like. There, there seems to be this, oh, Greg, I think you're muted. You wanna go ahead? But, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I, was, I was going to say, I mean, I think that this discussion has gone very nicely in, in the sense of people painting their own sense of what metaphysics is and why it's important for me. Um, I, I'm also someone who's studied different aspects of, uh, of learning and uh, have inquired about the nature of reality my entire life, which is why I've studied mathematics, physics, and philosophy my whole life and try to do them regularly. And uh, the thing which really drives me to metaphysical questions is the whole issue of precisely what is the relationship between our theory and reality. And um, it doesn't really matter what you know what science you're in a Carnapian sense. It doesn't really matter which which science you're talking about or which part of the humanities you're talking about. You're trying to understand the world in a certain sense. So I'm a physicist primarily, uh, or interested in philosophy of physics. And so when I, I approach these things, I always imagine the standard sort of thing a physicist would think, which is well, reality. You know, it's it's definitely physical in some way, and the default position metaphysically uh, for most physicists is realism. So if there's an objective reality out there, exactly how do the various sciences and methods of thinking connect with each other? And in the sciences, you, you know, you have this natural tower of the sciences with presumably physics at the bottom, and then chemistry, and then biology, and then perhaps mind uh, at a higher level, and there's an attempt to reduce these things down to the lowest level. So that's why I'm primarily focusing now on the ontological status of elementary particles, because the default position in physics has been for a long time that if you understand the things at the lowest level, then you can understand these other things. So it's a sort of natural drive to metaphysics that physics and science in general, natural sciences brings, I think. I know uh, I was uh, about to jump in and say, I know there, there's this history that I think we seem to be past. I know I had recommended as a title for this uh, roundtable originally is metaphysics dead because there had been this long, you know, reign of logical positivism uh, and, and, analy and the analytic philosophers who had sort of claimed that philosophy should be, I mean, uh, metaphysics should be eliminated 
as best it can. And so the job of philosophy is just to clean that up and make, uh, make metaphysics as uh, minimal as possible. And now there's been a little bit of resurgence. And uh, I think it's really interesting to see why that is and uh, where we're headed with that. So, um, Arkady, do you want to make a comment about your thoughts? About sure. Yeah, I'm kind of new to the word metaphysics, although not to the subject, because you know my I have a double trajectory in my intellectual life. My I was originally trained in uh, quantum uh, field theory and mathematics, uh, and my first graduate degree was on that, specifically group representations and things like that. And then I got interested in certain trends in continental philosophy, and in both of these, the metaphysics was, uh, I wouldn't say dirty word, but just about. Uh, and, the, and the reason for that, part of the reason for that, I think is that in, in some of these previous comments, it seems to me that there is a kind of sense of metaphysics, while the term has many various meanings. For example, the question, what is reality and what is representation of reality and the difference of that type, could be seen as metaphysicals or may not be seen as metaphysical, depending how you define metaphysics. I think in both of the trends uh, to which I came into both of the subjects of my interests, these questions were of course always asked. But the reason that there was skepticism about metaphysics, especially in subtle continental philosophy, apart from uh, one philosopher whom I know well, Gilles Deleuze, who used the word was not so much these questions, which were always asked, but the way we ask these questions. I think that's, that's the one thing which I wanted to say, that the question is how we ask these questions rather than simply these questions as such. And in a way, uh, as I mentioned to Greg earlier, my thesis for today is there is no metaphysics, there is only metaphysics. So that's a double statement, which I, I think is, is true, depending on how you define metaphysics. Thank you. So the, the king is dead long with the king. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, Harold, you want to make a comment? Oh, you're muted, Harold. Am I unmuted now? Yes. Okay, good. So um, I want to connect up with what Hans actually said at the beginning and start with what I, what I was studying and what, what the problems were that our teachers actually confronted us with in our studies. And um, interestingly, uh, I think Hans is completely right. Uh, whenever questions came up to the meaning of this or that, and then you know, typically the response was, um, this, is a, this has become a winged word, shut up and calculate, right? And um, then I entered into a phase in my studies when I met Hans Primas at the ETH in Zurich. He was actually a professor of, chemi of theoretical chemistry, but he uh, was much more than that. He was actually a mathematical physicist with strong philosophical inclinations. And he would always say, you know, when scientists claim that they have no metaphysical position, then they usually have a poor one because they are just unconscious of it. And of course, every scientist, he would say, must have a, a metaphysical position, otherwise he wouldn't be able to do science. Even, the, even a practicing physicist in his lab uh, goes with the assumption that there is something there 
that he does experiments with. Even though, uh, in, in specifically in quantum physics, we know that our empirical access to the system out there changes that system or the state of that system. So we never see the reality out there. We, we just by trying to access it, we change it. This is, uh, this is um, pretty clear now in quantum mechanics, but it's also pretty clear in, co in cognitive science. What we see out there is not what is out there. There are very interesting experiments about that. Uh, so um, in my trajectory, it became more and more obvious that the metaphysics as the study of what is there uh, other than what we see there or what we uh, can empirically do, um, do experiments with, uh, this is an important question. So that's, that's why I got into that. Well, there's this, there's this issue of the, uh, the, the fact of uh, metaphysics being the foundation of a lot of physical, a lot of physical science. And uh, this other interesting fact that some scientists seem to want to deny it. Uh, I wonder if, and there are so many wonderful historical examples of uh, scientists informed by their metaphysics. And rightly and wrongly, I think some of the examples that are often put forward as being a wrong example of metaphysical sort of influence on science would be, let's say, uh, alchemy. Um, I mean, there are many ex other examples. Of course, Newton was completely absorbed with alchemy and yet produced all this wonderful science. So, And there are other examples where scientists obviously did have some form of a metaphysical uh, uh, position, and it really did help them very much in their scientific research. So I wonder if there are any thoughts you might share about that. Well, I could say um, that, you know, one of the examples that usually comes up when people think about the relationship between, between physics and philosophy is Heisenberg. And Heisenberg was, uh, of course, the person who's most closely associated with this idea that, you know, looking upon something can influence it and, and restrict potentially your ability to see it in itself. And he certainly did bring in um, philosophical ideas in order to try to move forward. One of the most important things which I've been interested in is his uh, investigation of quantum potentiality. That when you start talking about the mathematics of quantum physics, what you're really talking about is mathematical description of the thing in itself, but you can never really access the, that thing. But when you go and measure it, you do see something real. And there's a certain mathematical relationship between those two things that the external reality has a potential, but it's only actual when you see it. And it takes a form which we can understand when you actually do make that observation. So I think that's a case of not a bad, but actually a good um, example of somebody bringing philosophy into physics. And he was a very uh, thoughtful person, obviously. I think this is a great point. And, um... Uh, Greg, because um, in the in the beginning in the, in the pioneer phase, let me say, of quantum mechanics, uh, there was an interpretation of quantum mechanics that was called the Copenhagen interpretation, and the Copenhagen Heisenberg was part of it, uh, and part of the founders, and um, the Copenhagen interpretation uh, tried to stay away as much as possible from saying something about the metaphysical or what you call the potential now. Heisenberg moved forward from that in his later years when he came up with the, the ideas that you just mentioned. But um, of course, the, the uh, Copenhagen interpretation as a, as, is a knowledge-based interpretation. 
Whereas many people in reaction to that in quantum mechanics try to, found an, to find an ontological basis for it. And um, this was the starting point of, of ongoing discussions about which one is the right interpretation, the, the, the epistemic, the knowledge-based interpretation or the ontological interpretation. Now, the modern point of view now is that it, it is not really quite right to play these interpretations out against one another the really interesting question is how they hang together, how they, how one um, plays into the other, and maybe even find some some um, rules how something that is out there, due to an experiment or due to an observation, comes into into um, our um, mind dependent um, representation. Uh, I. You know, I have a little bit of difficulties with some of these terms because, first of all, there is no such a thing as a single Copenhagen interpretation. It's never been. That's, that's of course, clear, yeah. Uh, because, for yeah. example, even from the very beginning, Bohr and Heisenberg's interpretation were somewhat different. It is also true, however, as Harald pointed out, that Heisenberg changed somewhat his views of things. In fact, if you look into his earlier book in 1930 on uh, physical, the physical principles of quantum theory, there is a very interesting comment which uh, Bohr shared with him, that one of the reasons that we don't, uh, cannot see, there was always a kind of ontology in the Copenhagen interpretation that has to do with what we see in measuring instrument. That was assumed to be real and in fact representable by means of classical physics. The question is, that classical physics could not explain how what we see comes about and could not predict it. So Heisenberg then made a point in which he said, look, it's not so surprising because our brain evolutionarily developed in dealing with the object consisting of billions of atoms, et cetera. So there is no special reason to assume that it can deal with how nature is constituted at the ultimate level. So his position in that way was saying that uh, you know, was much closer to Bohr, which Bohr sort of always maintained, and for Bohr was always central, the classical description of measuring instrument. Later on, in the book where he talks on potentiality, in especially physics and philosophy, to which I presume Greg in part refers, he takes a very interesting position following in part responding to Kant. Big part of this book is his response to Kant, idea that uh, we cannot really know things in themselves. There, you know, I cannot go into the detail, but he said it may be that for a physicist, if things in themselves exist, they would at all, they would be mathematical. It was influenced by quantum field theory and group representation and all these things and, and Dirac's ideas. So I think so from that point of view, uh, first of all, so he has a somewhat different view. But the second point which I want to make that in a way, uh, the things I agree with the point that the things epistemological and ontological are kind of mixed. We also need to define, to define these terms because ontology can have two meanings. One is assumption that so there is something outside us which is real. And another one is the assumption that we could describe or represent or at least conceive of what it is outside. Uh, so I think these are two different meanings of ontology. And I think 
from within most people in Copenhagen interpretation, certainly Bohr and Heisenberg, there was an assumption of the outside material reality. The question is, to what degree you could represent that ultimate constitution as opposed to the effects which it has on what you actually observe. And I think in parallel development, actually, the uh, psychoanalysis and Freud's theory, et cetera, use the idea of unconsciousness, uh, the unconscious, which had some of connections toward this line, that we see the effects of the unconscious, but not necessarily the unconscious itself. So I think there's a lot of a very nuanced structures to this of the to this to this of this to this term. So I think it's a little bit uh, so difficult to so that's what I would want to add as a footnote to this comments. I wanted to because uh, that's a lot of really interesting uh, uh, commentary. I wanted to make my own brief interjection and bring it down to the ground a little bit. I, I always think of the uh, uh, quantum revolution as being a case where perhaps, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, for the first time, this sort of physical theory outstripped any sense of where it's connected to reality. It reminds you a little bit of those cartoons where the character runs out over off the end of the cliff and is out in the air and doesn't know where it is. Uh, how exactly to interpret the Schrodinger equation, whether or not it referred to some physical thing or not, seemed to be to be a unique problem that physics found itself in. And maybe that has something to do with the return of metaphysical thinking among some of the later generations. Uh, I, I, I think that's, is, I would say that's a fairly unique situation where the science sort of in, in, insisted on a metaphysical interpretation, whether you like it or not, so to speak. My comment on that would be that I believe that there's some historical momentum because of the success of classical physics that sort of presented this default that things would naturally work out very well if we just thought about the world as made up of corpuscles moving around according to specific sorts of differential equations and we could make all the predictions we wanted. And of course, that wasn't actually the case, but that was the sense. And I think that that's why this feeling of going off a cliff was so severe in the case of quantum mechanics. I think in the stretch of history, maybe it wasn't so... Um, unique, but certainly it's the closest and very dramatic. So I would agree with you in that sense, yeah. If, I was I'm wondering if it might be okay to come back to something uh, that, that Greg mentioned earlier that I think um, I, I'm just, I'd be quite curious I think we probably have a, a very different range of opinions about this was that Greg mentioned the sort of traditional picture of like the layers with physics at the bottom and, and chemistry and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, I, I certainly, as I mean, I've done some physics myself and I understand that that sort of intuition, I, I would say though, I think more recently I've started to think, I'm not sure I, I understand why we would think that way as a sort of descriptive layering just in the sense that, you know, it, it may be motivating in a certain sense to physicists. And they think, you know, we're getting down to the, the deeper, deeper, deeper part of reality. But I, I mean, I would say I don't, my sense is that we're not making more progress in sort of uh, seeing the, I mean, this relates to the quantum thing. It's not like we're seeing more progress now explaining the common sense world from the physics. It's actually kind of like the physics is getting so weird that we're getting further away <laughs> from 
sort of, you know, making sense of the world around me. Like, I mean, it's, it's not like now I can look around me and go, well, now it makes sense because I understand the Schrodinger equation. Um, it's sort of the opposite. Like the New Newtonian picture was almost like, oh, I can just replace, I can replace the, the manifest image around me with the Newtonian picture. And it's like, okay, that's better. It's like, it's hard for me to think I can replace the manifest image of the world around me with the quantum mechanical picture. Um, it starts to me to feel like, okay, that's a great, you know, it's a, it's a great story um, or like sort of great painting of what's going down at the very bottom. Um, it's very useful painting. Um, it certainly does a good job of describing experiments, but I'm not sure it's helping me make sense of the world around me better. Um, anyways, I'm just curious what the different attitudes were that be, because I, I think that it almost divides people, I've found, it's sort of in terms of philosophical intuition. I mean, there are those who just think, yeah, everything at the bottom is just the physical stuff and everything else kind of, you pull it out of it. And there are those who resist that. Uh, let me just, just say that that is, I mentioned this is the default position, certainly not my own position by any means. And in fact, I agree with you wholeheartedly, except that I would say, give a little bit of a, you know, support to that idea and the not insane basis for that, which is that, you know, the nature of science has been to spread our, the scope of our knowledge and the scope of our knowledge has been where we've understood fairly well, we can go to the moon with pretty lousy, I would say physics in the sense of not very sophisticated and a computer, which is, you know, like the cell phone that I have here and that can get you to the moon. So that's pretty impressive, right? And so we develop all this technology for us to see at different scales. And when we get to the atomic scale, then we have this interesting thing where well, okay, it looks a little bit difficult to understand in our ordinary way of understanding what's going on there. But at the same time, if you look at the outbound process, for example, building up the nature of the, you know, the, the uh, periodic table, just from your basic mathematics of, it's not so different from the classical version that you can actually see a structure build up and you can think of chemical things as built up of those pieces and then you can get biochemistry and then you can explain biology and then you can explain the brain. Now, I would say like Descartes, well, mind is a different story perhaps. Um, but you know, there is some basis for thinking that in the success of science is what I wanna say, but I agree with you otherwise. Uh, well, you know, the Anderson, of course, in 1973 famous article, more is different, was anti-reductionist. It's a very important article. I agree entirely that it's, I don't think we could even reduce chemistry to physics, strictly speaking. There is a lot of chemistry, as Greg just noted, which could be explained by means of chemistry, but it's very hard to reduce it to physics, except a very simple case. It has a basic explanation of uh, with Bohr's atomic theory of, of the table in terms of electron levels, et cetera, but it doesn't mean that it can do much of chemistry. On the other hand, I do think that that's the point which Heisenberg in part made, that we sh should not expect that quantum theory should help us to understand the world around us. I think Hermann Weil at some point said about mathematics actually, and he said to relate uh, the intuition of uh, continuity in mathematics, he was referring to Cantor's theory, to our everyday intuition is meaningless. It's, but he said, we can use this very abstract mathematics in physics, including in relativity and quantum physics. And a way you can say that the whole history of mathematics beginning with roughly the end of 19th century was a developing of abstract mathematics, which had very little connections to the description of the world. 
And remarkably enough, if you think about that, uh, quantum theory, Heisenberg, of course, he didn't use the language, but he essentially used Hilbert spaces over complex numbers. It's not an object which in any way is related to our intuitive or other descriptions of the world. And that's why I think uh, that point about the connections between quantum physics or its story, et cetera, and the relationships between the, uh, the world as we see it is, is really complex and, and maybe impossible. It may be impossible. I think uh, behind Professor Halverson, I see a painting, which is kind of abstract and made me think about Kandinsky and other painters who were contemporary of quantum theory, who created all these images which you cannot really connect to the world. Unlike somebody like Picasso who always scrambled reality, somebody like Kandinsky just came up to a totally different, uh, of course he related it to some spiritual reality and commenting on it in this book on spiritual and art. But I think the point is that I, I think it would be hard to expect that a quantum theory has much connections to the actual world. In fact, to think so in terms of even classical theory was, is, is already complicated. A classical physics is not necessarily, it is, was born as a mathematical refinement of our intuition, this is true. But by 19th century, it's already developed if you think about Maxwell electrodynamics and things of that type, very far from what we do. And I don't think it can explain this different emergent level of how we do. So we need different explanation. And in a way you can say different metaphysics, which operate at different levels of explanation. Well, it, I think it might be useful here to make a distinction between different senses of explanation. Um, so there might be the question of like, does physics explain ordinary everyday reality as we encounter it in the sense of like, if we studied a lot of physics, would we be able, you know, to understand how to make dinner or uh, things like that? Um, so that sense of like, would it give us epistemic insight? And then there's a more metaphysically loaded sense of explanation, which is like, you know, if we understood the nature of the fundamental physical particles or something like that, would that then give us the metaphysical grounding or would it like would it explain the nature of everything would you kind of get everything else for free you know if if you were god and you were creating the world would you basically just have to create the fundamental particles and the laws and say you know let it be thus um and then you would get the manifest image um so i, I guess the difference between like is there epistemic emergence are there some facts that you just couldn't know by knowing the fundamental physical facts? And then maybe is there ontological emergence? Is there some stuff um, that isn't just some basic recombination of the uh, fundamental physical particles or like you could understand everything there was to understand about the nature of that reality by understanding fundamental reality. Um, and certainly like one of the things I've been interested um, in thinking about the metaphysics of the social world, social ontology um, is, you know, might there be um, some interesting ontological and metaphysical claims about the, the nature of the world as we have made it, 
where we just need different explanatory tools. We need different concepts. We need um, different ways of talking about what the world is like, precisely because we're talking about reality that is in part social. It's, you know, um, part of the way that, that we have made reality to be that you don't necessarily just get for free um, by thinking about the nature of fundamental particles. But, you know, that's a very, very, very complicated um, metaphysical question that wouldn't necessarily be settled either way by settling whether, you know, if you did enough physics, you would be able to understand what flamingos look like or something like that. Well, Elizabeth, you mentioned earlier this interesting uh, issue of uh, correlation and causation, which often arises in these large ensembles, like large groups of, uh, of elements. And then the question becomes, uh, how do you decide whether some sort of correlation is causative or that's just hanging together in some other sense? And typically when that arises, it also calls into question whether everything just comes down to billiard balls, right? Because now you've got these, the, the, the action of all these uh, ensembles. Um, I think it's a really interesting uh, uh, handle on this problem. Oh, sorry, Craig. So I would just say quickly, you know, the, the real question that comes to mind there, if you're a true believer in this kind of physicalist view is, you know, can the mathematics do it? And the answer is no, the mathematics can't do it. <laughs> the mathematics will probably never do it. Absolutely. But on the other hand, you know, we didn't really understand why the sky was blue until we did enough quantum field theory, which is not a very well known fact, but as a matter of fact, this particular sort of scattering is something that in, is understood best and probably only correctly after quantum field theory. So it's a very complex question, and, but I, I, was, I would agree with you on the basic level that it's a fantasy to think that you're just understanding some elementary particles, you're gonna understand the mind or social reality or, or anything terribly complicated. You know, my, my strong sense is, again, I, you know, I speak as someone who's, I hang around a lot of philosophers and even metaphysicians, although I don't think I would call myself a metaphysician, but my, my sense is that, you know, so somebody, you know, physics, when one, one is doing physics, what the job description in is, is fairly clear. It's, I mean, it's fairly institutionally fixed what a physicist does. I think my sense is for metaphysicians, their self description of their task is probably quite different from metaphysician to metaphysician. And my sense is that the way Elizabeth described her, her way of thinking is very different from some other metaphysicians who sort of think, my job is to look at all the sciences and just tell you how everything kind of flows out from the bottom to the top. Right. Yeah, I think it's like sociologically, that's definitely right. And I mean, one thing I've like personally been interested in criticizing is the idea of like the goal of metaphysics is to describe the nature of fundamentality or something like that. So there's this idea that, you know, we, we figure out what's fundamental, what the basic reality is um, that sort of, uh, you get a lot, there's a lot of interesting word choices. So you get the language of like purity. Um, so the pure, uh, the pure reality or the, you know, the ungrounded or the, all this kind of stuff. And so it's like, if we could just describe that, then the, the task of metaphysics is sort of carving the beast of nature at its joints or, um, is talking about the absolutely fundamental. And then everything else is, is maybe just kind of derivative on that or grounded in that or explained by that or 
an ontological free lunch or something like that is, is the, the phrasing that you sometimes use. And I think that's a very um, common way of thinking about the project of metaphysics within at least analytic philosophy. But I think it's also a way of thinking about the project of metaphysics, which a lot of people have been um, critical and that there's a lot of really interesting metaphysics that's um, not doing anything like that. So two of my uh, colleagues at the University of uh, Virginia um, who both self-describe as metaphysicians have just published books. And one of them is about the nature of personhood and personhood over time. Like what makes you um, the same person that you were 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Can we give any sort of account of that? Um, and the other um, is about uh, dependence and explanation and basically like, um, trying to criticize the idea, to criticize the assumption of foundationalism that explanation always has to come to an end. So could there be, you know, infinite chains of uh, descent? Could there be circular chains of explanations? Could there, you know, um, so we, there's big discussions of explanation and non-well-founded set theory or um, things like that. And they both think of themselves as doing um, metaphysics, absolutely, um, but they're not trying to, carve the beast of nature at its joints. They're not trying to explain the nature of fundamentality, but nor are they doing something that they think of as just conceptual engineering. Um, they're talking about, you know, what's reality like? I think the, the real question is, you know, you just brought that up, carving nature at its joints, right? Uh, does nature has, you know, joints primordially, or is it uh, our descriptions that um, produce joints that we that we try out to, to describe nature and and decompose it into into elements that are connected by these joints. So, I think a very interesting proposal, which goes along the lines of what you were saying, Elizabeth, is uh, already due to Quine in, in 1960 something, where he tried to relativize ontology. So, uh, actually, the article that he wrote it has the title "Ontological Relativity." And the idea is, uh, and of course Quine says that in much more detail than I can reproduce it now, the idea is something like every domain of description that we choose for a certain situation to describe it can be considered ontologically or not. And um, then we can have many ontologies which are connected to one another and actually Quine um, charges us that we should find translations between these ontologies and this is actually his program of ontological relativity. And once you, but once you look at a certain situation and find the best way to describe it, then you sh should commit yourself to, to that ontology and not change it during the description all the time. Mm. Hilary Putnam actually had the same, or, or worked this out with this idea of internal realism, which is a little bit different in the, in the nuances, but essentially the same idea. And that's, that's the way to, to um, find a middle path between foundationalism, which quite rejected Putnam too, and the other extreme of something like radical emergence where everything is possible and but nothing is connected with one another. So complete arbitrariness of descriptions. I think this is a pro proposal which is still somewhat understudied in the sciences, although it has become, it, it has received some, some serious consideration of philosophy, of course. 
Well, of course, if we look at the word meta to start with, right, Aristotle's books on metaphysics, which was not his title, uh, was added by somebody. Some say that means that it just means that the books come after metaphysics, after physics, the next set of books. I think the word meta implies in a way that you describe one system in terms of another. Uh, which is can comprehend the system from outside to some degree. So I think so from that point of view, you can have a very different level of metaphysics depending what you define as physics. So one of the main big contributions and in my view in quantum, quantum mechanics, especially in the Bohr's interpretation or an early Heisenberg, I'm not sure about Copenhagen, is that we, in, and I think it can, you extend it can be for at least in physics, we never describe, we always deal with our interaction with the world. To some degree, clients different level of ontology describe different levels of this interaction. So in that, in that sense, uh, it, if you take an extreme position, which I actually like, and we're not completely taking it, that everything is metaphysics in terms of, it's, we can only have a human description of anything. Part of Heisenberg's point was, as I, with which I started here, that there is no reason to believe that we could describe the ultimate level of reality or maybe some other level of reality. But here that, that we were fortunate that mathematics is to some degree free of limitations of common language and concepts, and it can predict what happens in quantum mechanics, but we don't necessarily can hope that it could work uh, in any other set of areas. I think it's true that the metaphysicians in part for that reason define this task very differently from most uh, physicists uh, beginning with Galileo and after who could think in terms of mathematical description of predictions of what, of what is going on because technically that's why the origin of the so-called the hard problem of consciousness, we really don't have a physicalist functional interpretation of our conscious experience in terms of quality. So I think that uh, really tells you that it may not be possible to describe many things to which we relate to the world through our mind in mathematical terms. So I think uh, that seems to me that that is the, it's very hard to believe that that program of from bottom. On the other hand, I'm not quite sure who would subscribe to that extreme view that everything, uh, it really doesn't matter. There is always connections and there is always some sense of systematicity in description and the interaction between various levels. Since you're talking about the meaning of meta, Arkady, do you know what, what Carnap said about that? Yes, I do. Yes, I know. <laughs> whatever you, whatever you do, I can do meta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but exactly true because there is always this, there is always a system which uh, you know. Lakatos has an interesting comment on that as well. You know, but Lakatos, you know, it's it's a great statement of Lakatos that all physical theory have the same probability to be true, namely zero, right? So, in in a certain sense. It's always uh, our engagement with the world in, in different domain through mathematics and technology and physics, which produces because while the ultimate 
likelihood the theory is to be true, even though Einstein believed that thermodynamics will probably always be true, is the local possibility of how it works. So in, in that sense, uh, it is a, a kind of workable uh, theory, which is at this given moment is we accept, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it continued to be. And therefore, uh, from that point of view, when I say there's only metaphysics, I mean by that, that we don't have any description except the ones which produce by who we are as evolutionary developed by uh, biological beings with the brains, which produces the mind, which we don't know how it does either. And only briefly, I, my, second, my second comment to what you said about the hard problem of consciousness. It's only a brief comment. I'm just coming back from the uh, consciousness conference, the big consciousness conference in Tucson, which, uh, is, which takes place in Tucson every other year. And you would be astonished how many neuroscience people still believe there's only the brain that we have to talk about, right? No, I'm not astonished. I know that, Carl. <laughs> yeah, of course, I know that. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. true. Yeah, I was going to say, I, look, I, I think I need to, to, to um, defend those who, uh, who take a, a slightly more hardcore view about, you know, we just want to describe, you know, reality like it is not, I mean, I, I completely agree with the, the phrasing, for example, that, you know, every description is a human description. But the thing is, I think that's also can be interpreted a negative way where somebody says, okay, so then there's no more standards, right? I mean, like my description is my description. Your description is your description. Um, so, you know, I think that, that taken in the wrong way, it, it can just, it can, it can sort of destroy the, the grand scientific project or even the minor individual pro seeking truth projects we have as individuals, right? Where you so somehow always have to tell yourself, my view, the view that's influenced by who I am is probably in many ways very wrong because of who I am, because yeah. of my perspective, because of uh, various things inside me. So what's, you know, I think I, I feel that I think that longing that some people have, and they say that, but there's just that description of the way things are, is because they're trying to say, remember, not every description is equally good. So I think that's well, one that, thing we're missing here is we, you know, what what is that standard we're trying to live up to? Oh no, that's that's very true. But I don't think you need to one need to take these positions. Also, some do that meaning that every, as you say, you agree that everything is a human interaction doesn't imply because within each giving domain there are reasons you can you can still do quantum mechanics under the assumption of all the constraints which are involved without necessarily assuming that you strictly uh, describe the ultimate nature of reality. I don't think anyone like Eisenberg, in fact, Bohr, you know, as a great statement says about complementarity, he says the complementarity actually contrary to Einstein fulfill all the basic principle requirement as science as a mathematical experimental engagement with nature. Science, including institutionally, has this type of rules and constraints, which uh, tells us something about, that is to say, we may not know things about reality, but our interaction with reality is not free. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not strictly free. It's, not, it's a matter of how it plays itself out. So I cannot, you know, come out and say without any constraint, Lucas, I, I think that there is a, 
some universal consciousness somewhere, etc. It's not a scientific statement. So from that point of view, we are governed by this rule, some of which could be personal. The question is what you believe as a ground on which you stand. And for many people, as you say, to believe that you describe reality give you such a ground, but such a ground is not necessary. If you think about people like Nietzsche uh, and to some degree, they, they believe Nietzsche famously say, long live physics because it, it gives us the sense of integrity, right? But it, at the same time, he believes in a certain, in the radical perspectivism. So I think it's a, I, 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 you know, I think your comment is extremely good because it is a very complex, a landscape of negotiating between how you ground what you say about your interaction with the world. So that uh, seems to me is a crucial point. You can ground in, in reality, but you don't, in the ultimate constitution of reality, but you don't necessarily need to, in my view. But just to follow up on what Hans, uh, the point that Hans was making though, I do think there is like, there is something about and you don't have to go as far as like scientific realism, but something about like the metaphysical assumption that there is an external reality that we are attempting to describe, um, that we are attempting to, you know, uh, to describe with scientific theories. Um, that's maybe different. Uh, and that, that's a different type of project than we might be doing in other types of humanistic in inquiry. That does seem to be an important constraint on the practice in some cases. Um, or at least like a, a hopeful aspect of the practice. And of course you can distinguish between thinking that it's what we're trying to do and thinking it's what creatures like us are able to do. Like, you know, in my everyday life, I'm trying to treat everyone equally and everyone fairly um, in order to try to be a moral person. I also kind of don't believe that someone like me um, is actually capable of doing that. You know, I think inevitably I am going to be influenced by bias and influenced by nepotism and influenced by being grumpy um, and like all these sorts of things. And yet nevertheless, it's what I'm, it's what I'm trying to do. And it's also what I think that someone like me um, is never going to be in a position to do. So we might think that like our theories are trying um, to describe a structure of reality and yet are never in a position to actually do that because they're done um, by limited fallible creatures and because it's really hard to distinguish between what's the element of the theory and what's the element of you know the thing being represented and so on and so forth. But it does seem like sometimes we wanna be able to criticize practices for having gone wrong. Whereas if we thought like all you need to do is have like ideological presuppositions and a coherent way of viewing the world and then get your theories to work out right. There might be places where it's hard to provide a critique that we wanna be able to provide. So this isn't um, physics obviously, but um, you know, there are these famous cases in um, psychological research where um, studies of whether ESP is real um, and what seems to be the pattern in the research on this is that like people who believe in ESP design all these really great, well-organized studies and they go and they find ESP um, and they find evidence that ESP is real. And then people who don't believe that ESP is real are like, that can't be, <laughs> right? And they go and they design all these really well-organized, uh, you know, great, well-designed studies and they prove that ESP is not real. Um, and so you've got this practice going on where you've got two set, you know, you've got different communities that have different assumptions and 
you know, different ideological stuff affecting what they think the world is like, and then they're doing scientific practice. But it seems like what we want to say in this case is, look, either ESP is real or it's not, and something's going wrong when science is like this. Um, we need to be able to figure out what's going wrong here. But if you don't have that assumption that like either ESP is real or it isn't, and the goal of scientific practice is somewhat imperfectly to figure out what the world is like, then you can't kind of make that external critique um, in a way that seems important in an epistemic situation like that. Well, it depends on the, since it, you know, it interacts with what I said, it depends on the level on which you assume ontological reality. I don't have to make an assumption in physics in principle, you know, I make an assumption and most physicists do, it's very, very hard to do without it, although possible. Some, there are four layers of Berkeley in fundamental physics. That there is exists an eternal rea external reality in the sense that the world existed before we came on the stage and will continue to exist after we are gone from the stage, which is going to be very soon by the standards of uh, the scale of the universe. But that does not mean that I can make any unambiguous or meaningful statement about how a world really is ultimately. But I can make unambiguous and correct statements about the interaction with the world through technology and mathematics, through which I can predict what's going to happen. And in the case of extrasensual perception, you can pose it in a similar way. You can check to what degree these things correspond to the experiments of which we, we conduct. It doesn't really undermine that. On the other hand, even in physics, there is still always disagreement between people who take ontological position and who don't, don't take ontological position, or there is still different theory. You know, there are people who are strong believers in so-called Bohmian mechanics, and you cannot really, they will not be convinced on, on kind of similar ground. It's always to some degree ideological, but my point is that you could conduct science without making an assumption that the ultimate nature of reality could be represented by your theories. But there always will be levels which will need to be so represented as, for example, in physics, we need to describe a measuring instrument because otherwise we cannot really do it. So I think it's not, uh, there are different levels. It's really the level of, as Harold pointed out, like wine, it's at the level of ontology and reality, which you have to assume. And if you deal with kind of social metaphysics, as you pointed out, it will be different from doing the metaphysics and physics. That, this, this, that would be my position on that, that you don't have to assume that something is real there, uh, you assume that something is real, but you don't have to assume that you could describe even in principle what, what is real. You don't have to make this assumption. But after all, we have no idea what elementary particles are in terms of their physics. We can only observe the effects on measuring instrument. Nobody has ever seen an actual elementary particle on its own accord. You can only see the photographs which they live by collisions with instrument and things of that type. There's, so, um, yeah, please. I was Go gonna ahead. say, Arkady, what, what, so what would you say then though, is that, I mean, if, if one thought, okay, I think there's a reality, but it, it can't be described, what should the goal then be? 
So what should the scientists be trying to do? Well, I, as I just said, you describe and predict what's going to happen in experiment which you observe. Right, or describe reality at the level where you can describe them. I mean, it was really a crucial nuance that you cannot describe the ultimate nature of reality, but it does not mean, as Harold said, that you can or they must describe. So you have plenty of goals. Look, I my goal is to develop, listen, I think Paul Dirac was quite interesting about that because he was very mathematical. So he's, he wasn't even thinking, uh, one of the people who didn't, who didn't probably have metaphysics, although I might be wrong about that, but the goal was to write an equation which predict what's going to happen if a relativistic electron hits the screen, right? So he writes the equation which leads to the discovery of a positron. But what is a positron? It's another assumption of something which if you hit the screen in a particular way, you have this and that type of data. That's a pretty in, a pretty good task to perform. It's, it's, it's a good task, but I'd say I, I to come back to sort of, for me, the very beginning, like, I'm a, a little bit afraid that, that that sort of idea is what led to a lot of what I see in science education. <laughs> no, 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 listen, I'm not in disagreement with that. Look, you can, it, this idea, it's just a little bit, forgive me for that comparison. That's why somebody like Nietzsche could be very dangerous, as he said himself, <laughs> because you can use these ideas in all manner of wrong way. You know, like you have some so-called postmodernist philosophers, people like Derrida, Foucault, Deleuze, etc., whose ideas were quite complex and controversial, but the way they were used, including in education, is sometimes ridiculous. You know, but uh, they try to base okay. them with these philosophical principles. I think yeah, fair, enough. Each, fair enough. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to outline for people, for our audience, especially too, that you know, because there's, there's a little bit of a caricature of the history of analytic philosophy that sort of leaves out some of the struggles with foundationalism, uh, and this also goes over into uh, the philosophy of mathematics, where you know a number of them, including Rudolf Carnap, who's been mentioned here several times, and Quine, uh, have moved along toward saying, uh, having this sort of naturalistic posture whereby they say, okay, well, look, science is, we're gonna assume science is largely correct, right? And now how do we proceed now? Because we're going to not assume it says something foundational about the, about the, the ontic re, uh, ontological reality, but we'll say it does provide true statements. So let's, what could we do from there? And from there, things like Quine, Quine's relativized uh, uh, ontology, relativized comes out, and then we're moving along to a sort of like a little bit of a lazy Susan of ontologies, like you know, pick the ontology one. Uh, Arcady made this interesting comment earlier about the difference between, I think is what Heidegger called ontic versus ontological, whether you could argue within science about what are the, the fundamental elements that your field is interested in, which is more of an ontic consideration. What are the, 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 the things that are relevant to what we're doing? And they may not be objects, they may not even be physical objects. And then what is the meta, what is it at the meta level? Can we say something about that? Naturalizing uh, uh, metaphysics has had this benefit of holding on to what we know within science and seeing what we can do from there, not necessarily to produce some sort of ultimate foundation. Is that? And finally, Davidson, like Carnap, had this notion that collaboration between people and having everyone debate this, the scientists involved, 
in these various disciplines was the way to arrive at some sort of like quote unquote real truth of what's going on rather than to, to be completely relativized. Any thoughts about that? Or anything else. I'll just I'll say one one thing about my own my own educational experience. Like like I think I, I think that has had some very positive effects. Um, so because I, I think in in philosophy of physics, one of the things people do is they think. I mean, actually, it's it's come to be that there's sort of two camps here. Um, the camp that I was sort of trained in was, yes, you take it to be largely correct, but probably not fully understood. And so the philosopher's job is to go and dig deeper and say what really is going on here. So, for example, with non-locality and quantum mechanics, you know, is that really cause and effect, stuff like that. There's another camp of philosophers of physics, though, who think, you know, maybe it's not largely correct, maybe because they're sort of cutting corners, maybe they're not actually doing their ontology properly. We should probably try to improve upon what they've done or maybe even try to try to urge them to do it differently. I'll just say, I think that first of the way that the, I think that's been a very positive influence in philosophy. It's given, you know, many people kind of a fun, interesting careers doing science. That's a little bit more sort of metaphysically oriented. I would say certainly in terms of the influence that it would have on uh, metaphysics, I think like so much of, I, I so much of, the trajectory of contemporary metaphysics could be seen as a response first to the, you know, you have the the skepticism of the sort of like uh, the neo, the, the, the positives, the, sorry, I can speak, the positivists, um, the Carnapian era, that kind of thing. Um, and then you have Quine where this, this is sort of rehabilitation um, of ontology, but like ontology light, right? It's like not, not, not the kind of uh, ontology that Leibniz was into. Um, this very, very, very sort of minimal thing. Um, and then from there, you have this building back up of the field of metaphysics, but in this very, I mean, especially with David Lewis, right? With this very, very intensely naturalistic spirit, right? So like, can we do metaphysics in this way that is um, cohesive with the practice of the natural sciences, or maybe even much more strongly, like, and I don't think this would have been what Lewis thought, but what a lot of people think, like, in service to the natural sciences, um, can be like metaphysics can like trim around the hedges at the places where the you know the science is going to get a little bit confusing or you need someone to uh, you know to come in and 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 do some cleanup or say oh, what exactly does this mean or maybe metaphysics can um, I guess like so Ted Sider has argued that one thing that metaphysics can do is just provide like um, explanatory tools or resources that could be useful um, in the discussion of of the natural sciences to try to figure out exactly what we're doing um, I think though that there is increasingly um, strands of thought in metaphysics that push back against that and say, well, no, that's like, we're, we're doing a lot more than that. Um, you know, there's a lot uh, that's, uh, that's going on in metaphysics that isn't necessarily related to the, you know, the sort of foundational claims or isn't necessarily just in the spirit of like, like highly minimalist ontology or things like that, that is more just like, again, 
questions about what the world is like, the nature of reality, which might be questions about the fundamental, but they might not, but that aren't necessarily going to be addressed by empirical means. Um, and sometimes that might be with an assumption of realism. Sometimes it might be with uh, like more to trying to argue for a certain type of deflationism. But the cool thing about any of these debates is that they all kind of end up being debates about metaphysics, right? So you, you can have philosophers like Nelson Goodman who tried to give this like incredibly metaphysics free view of the world and end up with like one of the craziest metaphysics out there. Um, so it, is, it does end up always being debates about the nature of reality that aren't empirical uh, one way or another, even if you're trying to argue that, you know, there's no there there. Sorry, I'm sorry about that. I was on mute. Um, it's been a fantastic conversation. I wonder if people feel it would be a good time to open up questions from our audience because we do have some that have accumulated. Does that sound okay yep. to everybody? Sure. Great, great. Okay. All right, that's the cue for Alex to come in. Okay, yeah, uh, people, you could write questions in the Q&A in the bottom panel or if you're on YouTube, write in the comments on the live chat. Yeah. Let's see. So uh, we first have uh, Win Schwartz. All right, we have Win Schwartz, um, I guess sort of referencing what was said earlier. So from elementary zilch particles to persons, what about the other way? Given what we are able to do, what we take ourselves to be, does our understanding slash claims about the elementary particles allow us to get to us? Emergent properties emerging from what? And then they also add, maybe a, maybe a zilch particle is a person with almost everything left out, top down rather than bottom up. So uh, any, any thoughts to that question? That, that sounds like Leibniz to me. <laughs> That's right. Uh... <laughs> I mean, he was, I mean, he was a fantastic metaphysician, I think. I mean, so it's, you know, it's his ideas, Leibniz's ideas sound pretty wild to us today, but it's sort of, it, it's, it's interesting to take someone like Leibniz and compare him to what people are, metaphysicians are doing today. Um, you know, Leibniz in certain sense, you know, he was like his age's greatest physicist and then thought he just needed to go further. And so he thought the only way you can really under, you know, the only way you can sort of really explain all of the stuff you know in physics is by having this additional layer, this, the monadology. Um, and there, boy, I, not that I understand that stuff at all, but it certainly does. He, you know, he ends up having, you know, mind and body come together in the fact that the fundamental things are these mental things, the monads. Um, now, I take it, actually, I'm no expert on this, but is that, I'm sure someone else here knows, is this not somewhat similar to like Chalmers, for example, uh, today, it's, David Chalmers? It's related to some degree because monads are the kind of atoms of the soul. So they... Uh, windows into the, or rather windows without windows, if I can put it that way. But in Leibniz, as opposed to somebody like, let's say, uh, others coming from quantum theory or even in mathematics, uh, there is uh, such a thing as in, in, in um, topos theory as uh, things without points, you know? So they, they are monads that they, uh, it, it monads, could be read not by Leibniz himself 
as the image of our interaction with the world. Leibniz, of course, made an assumption which was metaphysical and realist. You are absolutely right in terms of his program, but I, I doubt that we can ever get, as Greg suggested earlier, from elementary particles uh, to the uh, this other kind of level. I think at the time of Leibniz, there was a, li a little simpler picture of the layers of reality. I think right now we have this incredibly complex picture of, of the layers of reality because even in fundamental physics, we obviously cannot reconcile quantum field theory and relativity, which is a huge problem and nobody knows uh, how it's going to happen. But I, but I do agree with you that bringing up monads is a very, a very interesting point that Leibniz, who was uh, very different from Newton in terms of his calculus and things like that type, but his idea of monads uh, is, is a quite a remarkable idea, which tried to push it obviously beyond and see how we, uh, there is a metaphysics in that sense. So Leibniz's metaphysics, as soon as you come to the monadology, is of course an yeah. idealist. Metaphysics. Yeah, of course. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. So it's completely the opposite of a, of a physicalist metaphysics, which starts yeah. with that as a matter of product. Yeah. And then it, then it comes somehow, because the question was about the relationship between persons, if I got that right, and elementary particles. So we are talking about two different domains here, which are, which are very hard to reconcile. You know? <laughs> What is that? The Shakespeare line, such welcome and unwelcome thing at once. It's hard to reconcile. You know, that's a, a really, the question is, and do we need to necessarily reconcile it? That's yeah, the that's the question, yes. Well, but to go back to Hans's question about Chalmers, or anyway, that, that panpsychism seems to constantly reemerge in these conversations, right? Every so often we hear more of that again. And I guess Leibniz, Leibniz was one of the most colorful proponents of that sort of approach, right? Uh, well, I, I don't think he, he was a uh, panpsychist in that mm. way as some of the uh, people who come from Chalmers problem do, not all, not everyone. I think, or, you know, no, no, Leibniz, I think uh, was more idealist as Harold just said, that it doesn't mean that he projected any form of consciousness on material things. You know, Berkeley, was contemporary of Leibniz. So I think I, I think it was a somewhat different view mm -hmm. from panpsychism, in my view. Oh yeah, I just want to add Wynn wrote as Hans was talking about Chalmers, they mentioned Nagel. I think they're referring to Thomas Nagel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With, yeah. Um, okay. Well thank you, uh Wynn. Um so you have a question from uh T Music on YouTube. T wrote a few things. I'm just gonna get to one just because other people are writing in questions. So I, I'm, uh, they wrote, um, how do you define consciousness? And then uh, which aspects do you focus on when you try to define it? And with, when, yeah, anyway, so. Small question. Yeah, keep it to, keep it to, keep it to a few words, please. Yeah, if, yeah, simple as possible. Can we all just think the answer? They <laughs> <laughs> would show and not tell. I, I guess just to add, because I know there was a comment made about like neuroscience and I guess the limitations of metaphysics within how neuroscience is currently applied. And so um, I, having done, uh, I'm currently a research tech within a neuroscience lab. Um, yeah, we're, the lab I'm in is generally using more behaviorist techniques to try to deduce 
um, depression and satiation with regards to anhedonia. Um, so I'm not, obviously I'm not uh, like a distinguished panelist here, but I, um, it's definitely hard from a neuroscience perspective to sort of answer that question, given that it's very much caramentalized and limited to whatever field that the neuroscience is looking in right. um, in, terms of their, in terms of their research. Um, I also didn't want to belittle that question. It's a perfectly great question, yeah. actually. I, oh, yeah. I, I just mean, mean it's just a gigantic one. That's all. If, if, if I was to answer honestly and succinctly, I would say in terms of like, how do you define consciousness? I would say I don't. Um, like I, don't right. I, I, I don't make that attempt. I think it's also perhaps one of these areas. Um, there may be quite a few. Um, in metaphysically rich areas of philosophy where there, there might not be a single thing that we're talking about here. There might be multiple overlapping things that we care about that sort of give rise to this, you know, cluster of features that, that we care about and that are great, um, you know, phenomenological and, and normative importance to us. So um, I wouldn't even, I mean, I'm not a philosopher of mine, but I, I wouldn't even begin to know where to start uh, trying to define um, consciousness. And I, Sometimes these definitional projects seem like the kind of thing that that are that are doomed to failure. Um, so um, for 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 something as rich as con as consciousness, yeah, we've got I have no idea. Um, yeah, there's certainly no no single agreed upon definition of consciousness when you look into all these consciousness studies related fields of research. And even if you go back into 1904, there's this very influential. A paper that William James published, which, which had the title, Does Consciousness Exist? Question mark. And he even would deny that consciousness exists in the sense that it has no ontological uh, quality to it. It's, it's something very superficial, he would say. 1904. Well, Freud started as a neuroscientist and the originally scientific project of scientific psychology was a kind of attempt to relate memory to uh, neuro neurons. But of course he gave up because he knew that's not possible. You're, you're a mute, Alfred. Oh, yeah, I can go to the um, next question. Uh, thank you, Team Music. Um, Constance Old uh, on Zoom wrote, would it be possible to use a metaphor from another discipline, I use word metaphor in another field of study. I guess that's Can you repeat the question? Yeah, they, maybe Constance could rewrite it. Could go to the next one, but they wrote, would it be possible to use a metaphor from another discipline? For example, use a word metaphor in another field of study. I, I could go on the next one and ask her to rewrite I and flesh it out if. I wonder whether whether that refers to the idea that you know for us to understand something, we often borrow metaphor or anyway analogies from other disciplines. Uh, it seems that physics is often the favored one because I, based on our earlier conversation, it's thought to be the foundational science. Let's say, and we borrow some ideas from physics and import them to chemistry and biology and computer science and neuroscience, etc. And then the question is, can you, is it always, should it always be barred in that direction from what used to be considered a lower tier like physics to the upper tier? Is there such a thing as barring in the other direction? That's how I, that's the sense I make of the question. I, th I think working with metaphors is, is um, 
very important and also useful, but you have to memorize that it's a metaphor because if you don't do that, at the end of the day, you think everything is physics. If you use physical metaphors, yeah, right. that should be avoided. Well, and of course, physics uses a lot of metaphors, <laughs> all of them. It's just a question that I, uh, Harold is completely right. You have to keep in mind the level of its application because it could be useful to explain some of these things at the certain level, but uh, it has limits, but it's extremely productive analogy and, and metaphor. And, and it goes in both direction. I mean, it's quite clear, uh, you know, if you read uh, people like Heisenberg, Bohr, Hermann Weil, all these type of people, a very rich metaphoric field from all manner of things, but the, it's a level of explanation which you have to constantly keep in mind the limits of its application because there's all this temptation to think that metaphor explains it, right. that it nails it, but it doesn't. <laughs> there's some interesting discussion about this actually with the uses of um, teleological metaphors um, in the naturalistic sciences. So um, a lot of uh, scientific research or scientific papers will uh, avail themselves of it's like strongly teleological language. So they'll say like, you know, uh, the X wants to phi, or it's designed to phi, or it's like all this kind of stuff. Um, talking about things as though they're purposive or that they have intention or, and if you ask people about this, they will say, oh, well, of course, it's just a metaphor. Um, it's just a metaphor. It's not to be taken seriously. And then, but then sometimes if you dig down a little bit into the details of um, the theory, it looks like actually the teleological explanation is yeah pulling a lot of weight it's not yeah. obvious just how metaphorical um the teleological language is because some of the explanations that are being offered in the theory are sort of relying on the idea um that Absolutely. because the explanations are counterfactual in some way they're relying on the idea that um there is this almost sort of explanatory oomph to the idea, idea of teleology that's it's not clear how naturalistically supported that is so um, it, I think it's a good example of a place where sometimes the metaphors that we use, we can kind of dismiss them and say, oh, it's just a metaphor. I'm not taking it seriously. But in the actual practice of giving explanations here, it's not clear just how seriously people are taking the metaphors, which, which I think is really interesting. Well, that's very true because at early stages of quantum theory, the phrase nature makes a choice was really yeah. very big in this discussion. Yeah. It took a lot of time to explain it. On the other hand, Einstein, of course, is a brilliant rhetorician. He was an atheist, but he knew that to say that God played dice makes your statement immortal. If you just say nature played dice, nobody will pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> also, you know, it's interesting to go back to this very quick reference to Nagel, which I think was just Nagel. Uh, that he referred to in his discussion about consciousness, what's it like to be a bat? And it's interesting to think how much metaphor is a lot of what consciousness is about in some way, right? Because we, we, if, if what it's like to be is sort of asking a metaphor, a question about a metaphor, isn't it? Ultimately. Um, I mean, actually what Nagel wanted to point out with this is uh, that the, the, the um, experiential quality of a mental state is different from the neuroscientific description of a mental state. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So he was, a, he was a sort of precursor of, of what later Dave Chalmers called the hard problem of consciousness or 
other people call it the explanatory gap between uh, qualitative experience on one side and, and um, brain functioning on the other side. Yeah. And this was, I mean, Tom Nagel's paper was a, was, a, was a very important paper historically because the term consciousness was actually out of discussion. It was almost like a forbidden term from the beginning of the behaviorist school, like Skinner and others, right? They didn't talk about consciousness at all. So between the beginning of the 20th century and 1974, I think, when uh, Tom Nagel's paper appeared, consciousness was not, it was just uh, like exorcised, even from psychology, where it, where it intrinsically belongs to action, right? Um, Constance also commented uh, to consider political science. Uh, they referenced justice as an example. Any comments you add to that, given what else has been said about metaphors? The topic of justice. Yeah, yeah, like with regards to what you just discussed with, with metaphors. If there's, if there's not much you think he could add, I could go on to the next question. I just thought to mm -hmm. mention it because she wrote that as you guys were talking. Okay, go ahead now. Okay, I'll go to the next one. Um, let's see. Uh, don't worry, Scott. Uh, I see your comments. I'll get to you. There's one question on YouTube before you from Johannes Oweki. I hope I didn't bungle your last name. Um, they wrote, is physics necessary for metaphysics? Well, in what sense of necessary? I mean, I guess in some sense, physics is necessary for reality. And <laughs> well, yeah, they, they well, so they wrote, is it well, they wrote in the sense of like, can you study it without a good understanding of physics? But I think there's also that other that other realm that you were sort of referencing. That's also, I think, quite interesting uh, to discuss. I, I mean, I think that the answer to that question has a lot to do with what we discussed earlier about different different methods in metaphysics, because I I actually do think there is my sense is there is a movement among metaphysicians where they're like, yeah, we really got to know our physics because otherwise, you know, we at least need to have, a, you know, know enough about the, the things we say latch up to it in the right ways. But I, and I take it there's other metaphysicians who think, you know, the, the part of reality I'm focused on, yeah, it's not really physics. So it doesn't really matter that much that I'm not, you know, very up to speed in physics. So I, I think it kind of depends on the, the metaphysicians, methodological presuppositions. Yeah, I mean, speaking just as someone who does metaphysics for a living, like I don't know very much physics at all. And I, I could just be bad at my job. Um, but um, um, it, I, I think it I think it depends exactly as Hans was saying on you know, like any field, there's disputes about how you know, the best methodology uh, for practicing in that field. And so there are definitely people who think, yeah, I know we need to, we need to be able to understand um, what the science is saying so that we can understand um, how to make our metaphysical theories not only consistent with the science, um, but also know, like, at what, at what point is it time to hand over the mic to the metaphysician? Um, to say like, here's where empirical inquiry runs out. And so the metaphysician might have something to say. I mean, a lot of the work that I do is um, on stuff about the nature of social reality. Like, can we make sense? You know, wh what do we mean if we say that something is socially constructed? Like, is that, can we make sense of that claim? There's about 10 different things at least that people seem to mean like at the same time when they say that. 
Um, are social kinds real? Are they different from natural kinds? Like, for me doing that, it I don't necessarily think that knowing a lot of physics would be helpful to me for that explanatory reason that we talked about earlier. Um, I need to know a lot more about uh, areas of the social sciences. Um, and so I think it partly depends on, the fun thing about metaphysics is that there's like metaphysics of, of X for most any X. Um, so partly depends on what kind of metaphysics that you're doing. It partly yeah. also depends on what you think the project of metaphysics is and what the task of metaphysics is. I have an interesting follow-up question. I'd propose both to you, Elizabeth, and I, well, all, all the panelists, I want to hear what Harold has to say about this as well. But uh, when, when one performs an experiment on, let's say, in any particular scientific field that may test different metaphysical views of the, of the, of the world, is that still, does that turn the metaphysics into physics or neuroscience or social science? Like, does it move it across the line from what was formerly metaphysical? If you're able to distinguish between two different forms of metaphysical understanding? Well, clearly not necessarily because in uh, some aspects of psychology and sociology, you do that in a, in a different way. I think it has a lot of historical and ideological baggage, this debate, because to get back to Greg's friend Aristotle, because the term physics coming from physics and nature emerged through modern science acquired this type of uh, meaning because you know in 18th century the word nature referred as much to human nature uh, so i th i think that uh, what was said about different levels of metaphysics that you could certainly have a metaphysics in a real sense of explaining nature without physics if you give nature a broader meaning which nature deserves incidentally so from from that point of view i think uh, the answer is it's it really has a big historical and cultural uh, baggage because of the dominance of science in even relating to the form, to terms of nature and understanding nature. It goes back to, as Greg said, the reductionism problem that, you, you know, when I was young, so much younger than today, I, you know, I told to my physics professor that I have difficulty with chemistry. And he said, of course you have difficulties with it because chemistry does not exist. So it's only, <laughs> it's only physics, but it is wrong, you know, it's not true. So I think that uh, I, I do agree that the, and uh, Harold, that it's metaphysics is defined what your system X is, which I mentioned before, the metaphysics is a additional level of, of the system X and your system could, doesn't have to be physical. It can, to be, it can be social, ethical, moral, or whatever. And, and that's why I think, as uh, it was said before by Professor Halverson, I believe that physicists tend to have a kind of agreement in terms of demarcating the field they do. But the metaphysicians have a much uh, more complex stratification of uh, what they do as a field. Uh, you know, they do different things under the name of metaphysics. Well, I wanted to add something to, to um, Jerry's question, which actually I thought uh, Greg might respond to because um, 
Abner Shimoni, and I think Greg, you were working with Abner Shimoni for a long time. He coined the notion of experimental metaphysics, which seems to be a contradiction in terms because experiments are never metaphysical. Experiments are experiments that provide knowledge, so they are epistemologically grounded. But what I think what Shimoni meant to say with the, or meant to describe with this idea is that you can, um, if you have a good theory that, that comprises something that you would ascribe to a metaphysical domain and also comprises uh, something how the metaphysical domain might, um, uh, might appear to us when we do an experiment, then you can do the following. You can test two different theories with, which have metaphysical, which have different metaphysical presuppositions and also have different experimental realizations by doing the experiment. And then you can backward infer by the result of the experiment, which was the correct metaphysical assumption within that theory, right? So this is exactly what happens in, in bell type experiments. You have two different uh, um, metaphysical assumptions. We have the assumption of local realism and non-local realism. Both assumptions give you different predict predictions for bell type experiments. And then what you find is that in the experiments, one of the assumptions is violated, right? Mm -hmm. This is a nice example of this seemingly uh, contradictory notion of experimental metaphysics. No? Well, so, I mean, I agree. And then that really, you know, gets down to the question of what is metaphysics? Like, so for example, yeah. clearly ontology is part of metaphysics. So if you're a physicist and you say, well, I'm with Newton, I believe that things are corpuscular or I'm with the other people who believe that there are waves and those are the fundamental things. And so which is right? And then that changes your ontology. But that, you know, to, to the extent to which that's really metaphysical is suspect. I mean, I, there is an overlap and that's the interesting place. If there is an overlap, then you can do experimental yeah. physics. If you can't, there isn't. You're not gonna reject an entire deep metaphysics by any experiment, of course, which is the whole point of seeing it as being oxymoronic. On the other hand, that's one of the reasons I'm interested in ontological status of elementary particles because physicists, endlessly speak about elementary particles. It's been going for 50 years past the time when many people said, no, they're only quantum fields. And I happen to believe that they're both and you need to understand the relationship between them. But you know, this is, this is you know, the, the, the Shimoni thing, which makes a lot of sense. And I think when you find yourself at a certain point in dealing with your physics, it's sufficiently difficult or novel. You're faced with this question of how deeply do I need to go into the boundary to define my, at least my ontology. And many of the paradoxes come from bad ontology, bad ontological assumptions, so, which is you know, part of this whole reaction that we don't want to do any philosophy, like it messes up physics. Well, that's you know, quite wrong, right? But so, yeah, that's a very interesting. Yeah, I totally agree, yeah. And isn't it true that the physicists are keen to reconcile their own theories with what they understand, uh, uh, or, or if metaphysicians are keen to reconcile their views with what they see as current day physics, there must be some interplay between them right? or at some point. So yeah. I, I think that there's, there's always gonna be interplay, but it's not many, I, I think um, just to follow up on what Greg said, like I'm skeptical of the idea that you could just like wholesale, you could have a metaphysical theory and then you would have like an experiment that could just tell you that it was wrong or something. Even just for the simple question of the fact that data always underdetermines theory choice or um, because there's always going to be these added philosophical questions um, that you 
have to contend with, which is not at all to say that the empirical stuff is just unrelated. Um, so I'll give you an example that's not anything to do with physics, but um, uh, again, this is more in my wheelhouse. So I'll, like a lot of the work uh, that I have done recently is on the relationship between disability and well-being, um, and the question of like does um, having a disability uh, automatically reduce um, a person's well-being or their quality of life, or can we make sense of claims about disability? that are made within the disability rights movement, that it's like just a way of being different, but not necessarily being worse off. Um, now, psychologists are also interested in this claim. They're very interested in the question of the relationship between uh, disability and well-being. Um, and there's a ton of empirical data on it. And so you might think, well, isn't that just an empirical claim? Like you should just go and look at the science. But of course, when you go and look at the science, for one thing, the way that they do, you know, the way that the experiments are structured, it's kind of like, you go and you survey people and you ask them, rate your happiness or rate your life satisfaction on a scale of one to 10. Um, now that is really interesting data. What it actually tells me about what I as a philosopher I'm interested in when I'm thinking about well-being is a very complicated question. And there's all sorts of things about like comparing different people. And there's also different things that they might mean by disability and different you know, study populations that they're looking at. So I think it would be a mistake for me as a philosopher interested in disability to just pretend like that data doesn't matter. Right. That data is incredibly interesting and important to me, but I also think it would be a mistake for me to be like, oh, this thing that I'm interested in, it's just an empirical question because psychologists are studying it too. I need to look at their data and be like, okay, what do I think any of this means? And how, if at all, does it relate to this philosophical question that I'm interested in? And might there be ways that I, as a philosopher, might be critical of some of their methodology or say, I don't think that this shows what you think it shows or um, various things like that. Um, so I think Similar things can often be said about the relationship between a philosophical inquiry and an empirical inquiry. I'm, I'm sure Hans has thoughts on this. I mean, I think this all, I mean, I, I, I'm actually sort of coming up with new thoughts as we go because it's very interesting inputs. I, I was also really grateful to hear uh, Greg's reflection. I mean, I, Shimoni's a great, Abner Shimoni's a great hero in, in philosophy of physics. Um, and he's also a great hero for really trying to, I mean, in one way, reviving the philosophical spirit in physics, sort of, you know, physics is exciting because physics tells us stuff about what metaphysicians have been asking about for ages. Um, so I, the, the one thing I'll just say is like, I mean, I, what, what, this is just sort of off the cuff a little bit. I don't, I don't know where the line is between empirical science and metaphysics, or even just philosophy in general, in some sense, it often has to do, I, I mean, this is going to be an oversimplification, but often I think has to do with the, the normative, right? So the, the, the uh, you know, what should be the case. And I think they can come up in a lot of different ways. One, one is this the simple way of, of language engineering. In other words, like we have choices about how to use words. And the thing is, though, in, in science, often I think that's kind of forgotten, right? Because you have these sort of, you know, the terms are fixed. You know, you ask a person, you make a survey, you say, how do you feel? You know, is your pain level, you know, 10 or whatever. But we don't say like, what should we mean by, you know, the term well-being or things going well, stuff like that. So I think that's something where philosophers, we have a bit more of a degree of freedom to say, maybe we should change the way we're talking about this. 
And then also, I think we're always sort of looking over our shoulders and thinking in philosophical inquiries like, and so, so I, I, you know, Elizabeth brought out the key word that, you know, in philosophy, we always say, what does it mean? And the thing is, I think that often is like, what should I do about it? Right. So it's like, it's not just the data sitting there. It's like, so I wake up tomorrow, what shall I do in the light of this fact? So, and that's true. An experiment can't tell you what to do, right? I mean, experiment, you can, okay, that, that's the result of the experiment. You can hold on to the old worldview if you want to. Um, you know, that's again, the theory under, theory is underdetermined by data. So I think it's a super interesting question, you know, but it's, man, I, this is maybe one of the things again, where you just say, maybe we, sh we're, we shouldn't try to give a shark, you know, this is where the science stops and this is where the, the metaphysics begins. Um, although I think it's, it's also bad to sort of like, look, there, there's of course, territorial battles, sadly, in current culture, the humanities, whatever counts as humanities usually lose, right? So in other words, like people think, oh, just science, all you can do is the science and the rest of that stuff is like, you know, somebody, somebody has to, you know, sit in those chairs that exist in the humanities buildings. But in my sense, it's really good to remind, to, to remind people that the experiments, there's a lot more to discuss after the results come in. Right. You want to move on to the next question? Yeah. Uh, so how many more are you feeling? Because I have uh, four from people who haven't asked. So um, how, how are we feeling about we could, four? We could, Is that okay? Could, or I think four might do it. Let's see how we okay, can Okay. Yeah. So it's going to be Scott, then Walter, then uh, Ina, just so uh, people know. Because I saw Walter was posting a few times. So, so make sure he knows. Um, I, I, I got him. But anyway, so Scott, uh, thank you, Scott, for writing in a question. Um it's kind of a run on, so I'll try to fix it up. He could lambast me later. He's, he's my friend. So if I get it wrong, he could critique me later, but I'll, I'll try my best. Um, so he wrote, uh, is there any middle ground between the idea that science and mathematics are, are a human interpretation of the world and that there is only the human perspective on the world and that there's no view from nowhere? And then as an aside, I think, because that's sort of a question in terms of, I guess, ideal, an idealized world, but he seems to then suggest that in terms of how it's actually done, there seems to be only a human view of the world and a scientific realism that seems to be the default attitude for most Americans in the 21st century, that science and mathematics are the fundamental structure of reality and our study of these fields therefore allows access to such structure. Um, well, this is a little bit what Hans brought, brought up, was bringing up, raising earlier as a concern, right? This. Um, this idea of what, 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 what has been unleashed when we think of scientific study as being a social construct, right? Well, it doesn't seem to be a question about so much social construct. That's an additional okay. level of that discussion okay. because you could uh, use uh, uh, the view that we only have human interaction with the world through mathematics and technology and the social dimension poses additional question uh, in, in, in all these debates in the so-called social studies of science a few years back and social constructivism that was involved to what degree, uh, you know, there is a symmetry between social sciences and natural sciences from that point of view. And there is much more complex view on, the, on this point now. But I, you know, I'm, I'm always a little bit uneasy with people looking for a third way or way sort of in between, because it seems to me 
that one could perfectly do well science under the assumption, which as I said, people like Niels Bohr and that it is about our interaction with the world through the experiment, the technology, et cetera, rather than making the claims concerning, making such a claim that the nature, even at the physics level, is described by mathematical equations and things of the type, even though I do know that many people do believe in that, but I would call this uh, unfalsifiable uh, metaphysical assumption, because you, you know, look, von Neumann made a similar type of thing. He, he believed that quantum mechanics described the independent behavior of the uh, and only experiment interferes with that and brings in probability, etc. But I think it's an unfalsifiable ontology. The only thing we can falsify is what we see the experiment and how well our theories predict that. But I don't think we can, the advantage of seeing the world in terms of interaction in scientific theory and technology is falsifiability. You know, for me, even the theory of relativity, even though most people believe that it, but not all, there are philosophers of science who, I think, Kush or some, uh, don't believe that general relativity actually describes it's an idealization which enables us to predict very important effects, right? So I think this position allows us to do science and it is, you can say it is a form of metaphysics because it makes an, a, a non-falsifiable ontological assumption about the fact that we cannot describe or represent the universe, but it's different from making assumption that we can because there is a symmetry in that. Because that assumption is non-falsifiable. There is no way in my view to falsify the assumption that the nature is described by any mathematical equations apart from our existence. On the other hand, I can perfectly well falsify theory such as quantum mechanics, classical physics, which can, pre which can predict experiments, some of which has a kind of metaphysical flavor, not only Bell theorem rightly brought up by Harold, but even the double slit experiment. Initially, Schrodinger and Heisenberg's views of quantum mechanics were very different uh, metaphysically. So it's all, uh, so in, in any event, I don't, I don't think, uh, I, I understand the temptation of the third way or the temptation of scientific realism, but I don't think they're necessary. And it's not made a matter of Occam razor. It's, it's a totally different question. Why, why one take one position or another on that? I cannot explain why I take this interactive position versus scientific realism. I don't know that. I think it's very difficult to explain. Maybe Elizabeth can explain that because she deals in, in her domain, you deal precisely with this question. They are psychological, historical, philosophical, they are not mathematical. There is no explanation why I believe in that type of position. I can offer some, but I could be a scientific realist, but I'm not. Okay. Thank you, Scott Fishbein. You didn't yeah, give him full thank, credit. Yeah, uh, he, you he, he said on? he's not on the train, so I'll, I'll relay him later if he, he okay. missed out. Um, okay. Yeah, he tell me later if I didn't mess up how he wanted that asked. Um, so thank you, Scott. So next we have three more. So uh, this is from Walter K. Lou. Thank you, Walter. They wrote, I'm going to use the 
the latest one you wrote, which you wrote, uh, as meta-linguistic and meta-perceptual activities, respectively, to what extent are poetry and cinema, both physics and metaphysics, in the senses discussed today? Wow. That's an interesting one. Well, I mean, right, they partake of, uh, of metaphysical subject matter, right? Or, or their subjects might encourage a metaphysical reflection. Is that a fair way to frame it out, everybody? Also, like, what comes straight to mind is a lot of movies, both very popular and even, I guess, more was seen as high art, are using the multiverse um, oh. concept right. in, 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 in their storytelling now, right? Like everything, everywhere, all at once, the recent movies. One I was mentioning to you earlier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then another one I was thinking, um, so obviously it's being used in the Marvel Cinematic Universe for the more uh, pop culture reference. And then another one I thought of as you guys are talking was it was a short series by... Uh, the guy Alex Garland on Hulu called Devs, which um, was about a, uh, sort of a Silicon Valley company making a computer that um, sort of predicted, sort of um, predicted how the universe would project uh, through a predeterministic interpretation of quantum mechanics. Those are just, I guess, some examples that come off the top of my head with the flesh out the cinema aspect uh, of that question. Yeah, so I think actually one really interesting way and in maybe where these places can uh, interact is that uh, maybe especially speculative fiction um, to pick up on that can give really, really interesting thought experiments for thinking about um, metaphysical theories that could sort of, this is again, one way in which uh, I think you can think about the way that metaphysical inquiry goes beyond pure empirical inquiry. Um, because it's like you're thinking about situations that you know by their nature don't exist, but nevertheless might tell you something interesting about um, the the nature of reality if they if they give problems for your theories. So um, you know, uh, very often when we're talking about the metaphysics of persons, for example, somebody's going to mention something that happened in Star Trek: The Next Generation. Because they're going to be like, here's the thing that happened when there are two Rikers after they go through the transporters and what, like, which one is the real Riker? Um, and I think, I don't just think that that is people goofing off. I think it's the, like, interesting questions about how we think about ourselves can be raised by um, purely fictional scenarios that allow us to sort of, like, filter out the noise of the everyday world a little bit and just think about like, well, what is the nature of, what do we care about when we care about personhood? What do we care about when we care about survival? Um, there are also really interesting questions just about like, you know, what is the nature of fictional representation? Like, how is it both like true that uh, Frodo took the ring to Mount Doom and also true that Frodo doesn't exist because there's no such thing as hobbits and things like that. So like, well, these are the kind of puzzles that philosophers worry about. Um, so there definitely is like interesting overlap. Um, it's great. Great stuff. All right, we're going to move on. I think we want to get through these last two if possible. Yeah, yeah. So it's just Ruth and um, Ina. So Ruth wrote a comment, a question. The comments, I think, pretty funny. It was not a question. It was, um, I like the point that those claim to have shed their metaphysics often have the wildest implicit metaphysics. I just like to add also that um, when I heard that, I generally think of Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um because I think it's unfortunate a lot of science communicators um, kind of resort to those viewpoints. I think like him, also Lawrence Krauss, I think he's been kind of discredited though due to Me Too, but then also Sam Harris a little bit. When he talks about philosophy, I kind of uh, tune out because it's not, uh, it's not great. Uh, anyway, um, to their question, 
they wrote, um, why would metaphysicians need to know physics rather than chemistry? I think as a comment uh, made to the uh, previous question without already assuming that chemistry reduces the physics, which is a hefty assumption. Any quick answers to that? I... It doesn't hurt to, to know chemistry and physics. That's good. You're, you're muted, Arcady. You're, you're unmuted. But you can stratify it. You can have metaphysics of chemistry uh, as uh, we have, you know, it's true that the philosophy of chemistry was a very marginal aspect of uh, the history of philosophy of science, but actually it is an extremely interesting or even history and philosophy of uh, chemistry. So you can certainly have a metaphysics of chemistry and, and, or you can have, I, I do think that if you take the emergence view, you would, uh, you would qualify that any claims you make <clears throat> concerning the uh, metaphysics in terms of fundamental physics could have limit in other domains. So I think you have two approaches there. And that from that point of view, uh, just like you can have metaphysics of biology or then consciousness or whatever, you know, or sociological things. I think you can perfectly well have metaphysics of chemistry or philosophy of chemistry without assuming that it is reducible to physics, even though at some level you can make this assumption, it just practically is not true because a lot of chemical phenomena cannot be explained by terms of physics in very practical terms. And it has its own history and its own scientific thinking, which is very long going all the back to alchemy and things of that type. Just to pick up on the bit from Ruth's question, I, I just think it was really interesting. This this idea of uh, metaphysical inquiry is kind of inevitable. Like you just always end up doing it. It's like even just the very question of whether metaphysicians need to know metaphysics. I'm sorry, need to, they do need to know metaphysics. Um, whether metaphysicians need to know physics is itself this really substantial metaphysical question. <laughs> like you just um, the annoying thing about this these questions, but also kind of the cool thing about them is that like you you just run into them constantly, um, you can't get away from them. Okay. I'd also just like to add, I've heard sort of the, the same thing uh, talked about physics from mathematicians where they say, oh, physics isn't real, math is, right? Because usually they nitpick the fact that in physics, you make a lot of assumptions while you have to build from the ground up in, in math. So it's a, the cycle continues, I guess they'd say. Yeah. Um, and then I guess last but not least, sorry, I have to find it. All. Okay, Ina Goldina. Uh, thank you, Ina. They wrote in, what is the role of language in metaphysics? Another small question. Yeah, very. <laughs> in the beginning, there was it's the word. such an important, yeah, it's important, right? Anyone want to take a shot at that? Well, I maybe we can reference some, we, we made a number of references to sort of the tradition of analytic philosophy, which is all about that question. Um, uh, well, by the way, I made a reference earlier to Carnap and Davidson as uh, people who were seeking consensus within the discipline. I meant Richard Rorty, not Donald Davidson. When I meant, made that comment about different, how different fields can you, you rely on sort of democratic process among their uh, participants to settle on what the truth might be, or anyway, what they're, they're striving for the truth. Um, Wait, but, Oh, but, sorry, just yeah. to interject because um, Walter, I think, wanted more of the emphasis in poetry and cinema 
as inherently inquiries into language and perception in and of themselves. So I think I can kind of add to what to what Ina was asking mm -hmm. also to maybe better answer what Walter wrote previously. Sorry. Mm -hmm. So anyone else want to say something about linguistics? And uh, it's a well, big topic. Wittgenstein in the end of Tractatus, my language is my world, you know? So I think it's irreducible because there is no language without thought and there is no thought without language. So the language plays a huge role. And actually uh, in the history of quantum mechanics, there were people including Heisenberg who reflected as well as Bohr on the necessity of even common language that you cannot avoid it, you know? So I think that that's the, but it will be used differently. I'd love to, uh, I, I love the, uh, the mention of Wittgenstein in this context, because we've mentioned how so many people, so many uh, thinkers have um, said they want to do without metaphysics and then develop their own terrible metaphysics or rely on it anyway. I think Wittgenstein's a wonderful an elegant uh, uh, example of someone who tried his darndest to sort of get rid of metaphysics or anyway to be an anti-metaphysician and yet he's created an industry of metaphysics. So, I, which is a lot more elegant and sophisticated than some of the other folks we've touched on. Um, anyway, I wanna thank everyone. I think we've had an incredibly uh, stimulating conversation and I'm not surprised to find that I'd love for it to continue on further uh, I want to thank you all for participating, and I hope you all will consider coming back in the future for other Helix talks to be uh, determined. Uh, we're going to be starting up again, as I said, in the fall, and we will be sending out announcements to all of our audience members about when that will take place, almost certainly sometime in September. Anyway, thank you all again. That was been thank wonderful. You. Thank you. Uh, I missed it, though. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.